1: Hi, everyone. It's Paula. Look, sometimes life gets in the way, and it got in the way this week. We did not get tonight's episode done. So tonight we're going to play an oldie but goodie for you. Five on Your Side, that's Channel 5 in Cleveland. They pulled some court documents that were filed last fall that showed in January of 2019, a woman came forward and identified her ex-boyfriend as a suspect in Amy Mihaljevic's murder. Now police have a whole new slate of witnesses and documents in that case. And they're not releasing what they've got, but it's very, very interesting. So in light of that new news and also the ongoing expectation that this is a case that is fully solvable and may be solved soon, we're going to replay our Amy Mihaljevic episode for you. So, have a listen, and we'll try to get back on track for Wednesday.
0: You know something's wrong. gather across
2: land, taking refuge in your hands. Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. The song you're listening to is No New Wilderness by Drew Joseph. Folk singer-songwriter from Toledo, Ohio. Drew is our featured musical artist this week and if you hang around with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you a little bit more about him. How to find his music and play the whole song for you. But for now, let's throw another log on that fire, campers. Tonight, we've got one of Ohio's most famous mysteries. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everyone.
2: Paula, I know the topic tonight, and I got to say, this is a murder that affected me most as a child. Amy Maholovic was about my age when she was kidnapped and murdered, and in some ways, it was an end to the childhood innocence for me. She was abducted on my birthday in 1989.
1: Oh, that was your birthday. Yes. yes. Oh, Steve. You know, I've heard that from other people in your generation. It was... A defining event for many people. And you know, for me, what really affected me was how the killer played on her love for her mother to commit this terrible crime.
2: Uh, absolutely. And we got a very special armchair detective with us this episode. Investigative reporter James Renner covered this case, wrote a book about it, and even pursued a suspect of Florida Keys to get answers to some of his questions. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. But first, why don't you lay out the basics of the story for us?
1: You got it. Well, our story begins in October of 1989. And Amy Renee Mahalovic is living the life of a typical 10-year-old. She lives in the upscale Cleveland suburb of Bay Village with her mom, Margaret, her dad, Mark, and her brother, Jason. Now, it's worth saying that Bay Village is about as safe as it comes. There wasn't a single murder, abduction, or reported rape all of the prior year. You know, the kinds of lists that this community shows up on are more the type of safest and best communities to raise a child. And Amy is in the safest place of all in this safe village. She's at home, and that's when the phone rings. It's a man, and he identifies himself as a co-worker of her mother's. Amy's mom, Margaret, worked at Trading Times Magazine and the man says she's going to be receiving a promotion. He tells Amy he needs help picking out a gift for her to celebrate. They have $45 to spend and if they don't spend it at all, Amy can use what's left to pick out a little something for herself. Now, Amy's mother recently went from part-time to full-time, so Amy knew there was some kind of change happening. Perhaps That's why there was this comfort zone. Maybe that's why the call didn't seem to be so far-fetched. So on October 27, the day at Bay Middle School has come to an end. On this day, Amy and her fellow fifth-grade students actually sat through a presentation on stranger danger. That was a term very popular in those days as a way to warn kids against potential perils away from home. Yeah, I remember those. But Amy must not have thought of her mom's self-described co-worker as a stranger because even after that presentation at 2.05 p.m., Amy is going to keep this appointment. Now it's a Friday, a blue sky kind of day. Amy's day always ends about an hour before her brother Jason's. Her routine is to go home and call her mom at work to let her know all is well. But on this day, she and two friends walk a half-mile to the Bay Village Square Shopping Center, and the friends leave her at Baskin-Robbins, where a man, perhaps 20 to 30 years old, wearing khakis, a polo shirt, and a members-only style jacket, approaches her and puts a hand on her shoulder. She willingly follows him through the parking lot, and they disappear. Hmm. Now Jason finishes his school day and he goes home only to find Amy isn't there. He calls their mother to mention it to her. And Margaret remembers Amy was thinking about trying out for choir. So maybe that's delayed her. So she tells Jason, wait a while and just call when Amy makes it home. Well, Margaret gets another phone call, but it's not Jason. It's Amy, but it's an odd call. The usual chatty Amy is only giving her mom one-word answers. It's so strange that Margaret is unnerved. She finishes her work quickly and heads home, arriving around 5 p.m., but Amy's not there. Margaret jumps back in the car and drives to Bay Middle School, and that's where she sees Amy Bike still resting in the rack, the only bike there. Now, Margaret calls the police, and they react quickly. Amy's disappearance is on the 10 o'clock news that very night, and that's where a friend of Amy's sees the story and calls police to tell them how Amy had spoken of this man who wanted Amy's help picking out a present. Others who had seen Amy at the plaza, they describe this man to a police sketch artist, and a sketch is created and circulated all over I will point out that police have, even though they have the sketch, they have always pointed out that it was given by a couple of 10-year-olds. They don't want people to rely on it. They Mm -hmm. say, if you've got a suspect in mind that doesn't look like this, please don't think that this sketch is that accurate. Now, the Bay Village and uh, police and the FBI, they launch a search that sometimes is described as the biggest search Ohio had seen in decades. There were thousands of leads. Authorities did some 20,000 interviews. Dozens of people submitted the lie detector tests. But the weeks pass, and they have no suspects and no Amy. Three months later, on February 8, 1990, a jogger in rural Ashland County that's about an hour's drive from Bay Village spot something strange lying in a field along County Road 1181 in Ruggles Township. It's Amy. She's still wearing the clothes she was last seen in. It's clear to investigators that she had been dumped there shortly after her abduction. Even though she's far from home, investigators are going to come to believe her killer likely knew this area of Ashland, perhaps even killed her nearby. They find some other things at the scene that might prove helpful. On her body are yellow fibers, and about 300 feet from her is a green blanket and a curtain. These, of course, are odd things to be laying in a rural field. The olive green curtain appears to be handmade from a duvet cover or a bedspread, and on it are dog hairs, similar to that of a dog owned by the Mihalovics. So now it seems likely that these objects were used to conceal Amy's body before she was dumped in the field. Right. The Cuyahoga County coroner finds Amy's last meal was some sort of soy substance, perhaps Chinese food. There was some blood indicating a sexual assault, and the killer left something else behind, mitochondrial DNA. Now, that's not enough for a complete DNA profile, not the kind of thing you can run through a national DNA database. But there's enough there that could help point authorities in the right direction if they get the right suspect. Also interesting is what authorities don't find at the scene. Missing is one of Amy's turquoise horse earrings, her black ankle boots, a denim backpack, and a black leather binder with the words, Buick, best in class, written on the front clasp. These things are believed to have been with Amy when she was taken and it's possible some of these things were kept by the killer as a souvenir. Now, years after St. Amy's remains were recovered, we learned this might not have been the only girl that this killer had targeted. In 2006, this is 16 years after her, her death, police finally reveal there had been several other young girls who had received phone calls similar to the one Amy had received. Always a male caller, always using the ploy of wanting to get a present to celebrate the girl's mother. These other girls, none of them who who had followed up with the caller, were living in North Olmsted. That's a community not far from Bay Village. And some of them had unlisted phone numbers. That was a vital piece of information in trying to learn who might have placed those phone calls, who would have access to unlisted phone numbers. Well, through the course of their investigation... Detectives learned the one thing all the girls had in common was they had all visited the local Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. And there, the center had a visitor's logbook, the kind of thing where you jot your name in at the front door. Could these girls also have innocently jotted down their phone numbers and addresses? And if so, does this mean the killer was tied to this center? Unfortunately, the logbook has disappeared those questions can't be answered. Steve, there is so, so much more about this case. It's been the subject of TV shows, blogs, websites, books, podcasts, and they've covered it far more extensively than this single podcast could ever cover. So let's stop there and head right over to our special guest, James Renner, who can help us focus on the most important insights into
2: this case. Sure, yes. James is a true crime author and one of my favorites, by the way. Actually, he is, one, he is my favorite. I love his, his books. They're fantastic. You have
1: mentioned him many times, too. Absolutely. I know you're a
2: fan. His first book was about his own research into this case, the Amy Maholovic case. Yeah. So, welcome, James.
1: With us tonight is James Renner. He's an investigative journalist who has written several books. Uh, He hosts the podcast, The Philosophy of Crime. I hear, James, you've got a second season that's going to be dropping maybe in April.
3: Um, yes, uh, sometime in the next uh, a few weeks. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully sometime around end of March, early April we'll come out with the second season.
1: Oh, we are very much looking forward to that. And among your nonfiction uh, books, you did Amy, My Search for Her Killer. You have been on this case for, what, a couple of decades, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, really... You know, we were both born in 1978, and, uh, you know, so this happened in 89, and I had just turned 11, and I've really been thinking about this case since then. I used to get on my, my Huffy two-speed, and uh, when I'd live up with my mother in Rocky River, I'd jet uh, on that bike uh, over to Westgate Mall to see if I could find Amy in the crowds, and uh, or or the guy that took her, you know, based on the composite sketch. So oh, wow. even back then, for, you know, I think it was just um, realizing that that we lived in this world. And, you know, it was that moment that I, I realized that we live in this kind of dangerous world, and, and I wanted to do something about it. It just kind of stuck with me. It became the first big story that I wrote for... Scene when I worked for Scene Magazine and then it was too much for an article so it became my first book that came out in 2006.
1: You know, there's so much to this case that we can't possibly cover uh, you know in the the space of our little podcast but i know you've got a primary suspect that you have zeroed in on why don't you tell us a little bit about that because we haven't introduced our listeners to that at all
3: yeah the you know, one of the reasons, maybe the biggest reason this case has never been solved, is there were too many men that had the means, motive, and opportunity to commit the crime, and the list of suspects is just has just been overwhelming for police and FBI, and the the best the FBI has ever been able to do is narrow that list down to a top twenty five, <laughs> and you know so. I remember finding that out when I was a reporter, and and uh, you know I'm just like, well, you know, where do I start? You know, how do I how do I look into this? And it's it's daunting. And you, you look at each of these people, and they're very strange in, in their own own way. And some of them definitely, and admittedly, paid attention to to little Amy. And uh, so she was just surrounded. And I don't know if it's you know the big question is is it something about this girl was it was it something about this crime or are there just are we all surrounded by so many groups at any time i don't know which answer is barrier but what what i've hopefully done uh during my research into the case is narrow that list down to like a top three I have 3 people in mind that uh, are pretty good suspects and then one absolutely rises over and above the others for for good reason. You know, but but how did I get to these 3? You know, I think the key to solving Amy's case is figuring out how she was connected to these handful of girls in North Olmsted who also were called by her killer. This is a detail that hasn't talked about as much as it probably should be in the news and uh, news reports, they found out, and and, and one of the reasons why this hasn't been talked about so much is the police kind of kept this secret for like 16 years for for who knows whatever reason, Um, because it would have been very helpful to know back back in the day. But Amy, the, the way that her killer got to her was he called her at home when she was home alone after school, in the days leading up to her abduction and said, hey, I I work with your mother. She just got a promotion. Why don't you meet me at the Bay Square Shopping Plaza and I'll take you to get a present for her. It'll be a little surprise and it'll be nice for her. So that, of course, was a lie. You know, he didn't work with her mother. But it was a very specific kind of ruse. And before he called Amy... We now know that this person called a number of girls from the North Olmsted area, and so whoever it was had to know these girls from North Olmsted, which is the suburb south of Bay Village, and also in from Bay Village. So you you look and try to find how these girls are connected, because in you know wherever they cross paths, somewhere in there is is the killer. You know, it's like a big spider web and and he's right in the middle so all three of my top suspects uh, were connected to Amy and these other girls from North Olmstead one of the ways in which they were connected is this came out only because of the book that I wrote Uh, Amy had a horseback riding instructor with a very unique class name and a couple of these girls from North Olmsted contacted me after the book came out and said, hey, uh, that last name's really familiar to me. I had, a, I had a math teacher with that same last name. I wonder if he is related to Amy's writing instructor. And I looked into it, and sure enough, this man was the writing instructor's brother. So that's a very weird connection. Um, and, and so he's in my top three because of that. But he doesn't have... He doesn't have any history of violence or uh, or anything like that as far as we know. He doesn't have any criminal history. He's a weird dude, but that's about it. Right. Um, the, the other way in which these girls were connected is they all visited the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center in the weeks leading up to Amy's abduction. And... Uh, that's a little nature center up in Bay <clears throat> and at the time they had this log book where the kids would come in and they would sign their name and address and phone number and then the center would take that information and put them on a mailing list and you know, so that's how they sent out you know coupons or, or just notices for what the nature center was doing so they all visited this place, and my number two suspect uh, was the guy that was in charge of the Metro Parks at the time, and he would have had access because the Nature Center is in the Metro Parks, but it's it's technically a private company in this in this public land. So he he would have been coming and going at that place. And he checked himself into a mental hospital uh, 10 days after Amy was abducted. He has similar... He he has some weird things in his past where he had to leave, I think, the state of Indiana after some allegations came up there before he came to uh, the Cleveland area. Very strange guy definitely a dangerous guy also my top my top suspect is also connected to the nature center and and this is a guy who was a former teacher at amherst and Vermillion school districts he used to bring mice to the nature center to feed to the snakes he he in his classroom in, in amherst he taught middle school science He had this uh, kind of like a personal zoo with, you know, mice and lizards and conchellas and fish and who knows what. But when the mice bred and there'd be too many mice, he would take the mice over to the nature center so they could keep snakes. So, yeah, those are my my top three suspects. And and the, the top one, too, there's, I mean, we could go through just a list of reasons why he looks guilty you know he had a number of relationships with with, uh, prepubescent students that he was caught in when they asked him to he was 29 years into a 30 year teaching career when the the laws in the state of Ohio changed and for the first time in his career he had to get fingerprinted he had never been fingerprinted because he had kind of come in through like a substitute teaching application in like 1972 so he was kind of grandfathered in but they came to him, they are like, hey, we need your fingerprints. And he refused. He's like, no, I'm not yeah, I'm not going to give you my fingerprints. And he abruptly quit teaching one year from retirement, and that was around the time that the FBI were finally looking into him as a suspect in 2005. And he abruptly quit teaching and disappeared. Oh, wow. And nobody could find out where he went for six months. And then he turns up living out of a homeless shelter in Key West, Florida. So he got as far from there like, as the we could get without, without leaving the United States.
1: You've got to share the story. I, I saw the story about you pursuing him down to Key West and how you found him. Can you give us the short version of that?
3: <laughs> sure, yeah. So uh, I learned about this suspect in 2008, when a number of his students contacted me, and I was a reporter at scene at the time, and I just needed to, I needed to talk to this guy and, and see him for myself. And uh, in my mind, I had never been to Key West, but I had been to, like, Kelly's Island, and I knew Kelly's Island was pretty small. Um, so I figured, well, Key West is probably not much bigger. So I bet I could find him if I went down there. You've ever been to Key West, of course. Uh, when I got down there, it is huge. It's a it's a huge island, and it's like searching for a needle in the haystack. Uh, you know, for I had about forty eight hours where I could look, look for him. I, I showed his picture around. I had a flyer I'd printed out, and I was showing his picture around town. You know, there's like a main main road where a lot of bars are. And people were telling me, Yeah, yeah, that's the guy that plays ragtime piano at the bars sometimes. And I knew that was him because he'd played ragtime piano at Disneyland, uh, and Cedar Point in the summer. So I knew I was getting close but I still couldn't find him. Finally I went to the homeless shelter where he had been when he first moved to the island years ago. I asked around there, and finally I found this guy, and he said, if anybody knows where he is, it's got to be Mr. Frisbee. And I said, really? Who's Mr. Frisbee? And he points at the beach, and there's this guy on the beach that's throwing a Frisbee to himself. Like, he'll throw it really hard, and then i will go running after it, and he'll catch it. And it so that's Mr. Frisbee. So I went up to Mr. Frisbee, and I showed him the picture, and he said, oh, yeah, that's my friend. I know where he is. He's probably at work right now. I said, oh, yeah, where's that? And he said, well, he manages the Wendy's on the island. So I then went to Wendy's, and... Sure enough, he is the manager, or was the manager there, but he had called off work that day, and so I, I, I came up with the story. I said, "Hey, I'm a former student of this man, and uh, I came all the way out here. I'd love to catch up with him. Do you know? Do you have a phone number or address for him?" And the woman went into the back, into the employee records, and she came back, and she's like, "That's great. He didn't let. He didn't list any." I and mean, he addressed the phone number on the application, of the he's like, I'm sorry, I don't know where he is. Or how to reach him. <clears throat> so I drove around and, and I it got to the point where I needed to drive back to Miami to catch my flight back home. I had like 45 minutes left. And I stopped at a stop sign. On the northeast side of the island, or quarter of the island, yeah, you know, I I hadn't prayed in, in a number of years, and you could call it a prayer or a message to the universe or or whatever. But I just, you know, I just in my head, I sent out this message, and you know, and I, and I said, if this is if this is the guy, uh, I need help because I can't find him. And at that exact moment, he walked in front of my car. It's crazy. And, uh, it is one of the craziest things that's ever happened to me. And so I I pull off on the side of the road and I get out and I yell out, "Hey, you know his name," and and he stops and, and turns and and I walk over to him and at, on the corner uh, uh, at the corner of, of this road we have this conversation and and uh, I said, "Do you know?" you know who I am and and right away he says yeah you're James Renner my sister told me you'd probably be coming billet for me you know we we talked about the nature center and he and I I decided to bluff him because it it all comes down to whether or not he was at that nature center and his students tell me he was but he told the police uh, well at least the police and the FBI told me when they interviewed him when they uh, interrogated him, he said he was never there. So I decided to bluff him and I said, What would you tell me if if I told you that I have a picture of you and one of your students at that nature center that that one of your students showed me this picture. And he got real quiet and he thought for just a second and then he said, and I quote, I never told the FBI I wasn't there. All I ever said was, I don't remember being there. So he is lying about being at that nature center, and in my mind, I can only think of one reason why he would want to lie about that, because he knows it's important.
1: Wow. Well, that—that's an incredible twist of fate. I, I gotta believe. I would like to believe the universe was was answering your your call for help there
3: when they put him in I'd your like path. I'd like to believe too. I mean, how cool would it be though if he proves out? If 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 it, if we learn that he wasn't the guy that did it, you know, what does that say? Yeah. So. Whatever it says, it's it's, it's it's a strange story.
1: Now, I understand the police have revealed some pretty stunning evidence that they have not shared before. So why don't you tell our listeners what the latest news is on this evidence and what you think it means?
3: yeah uh so there's been a couple of new details that have come out in the last couple of years one one big one was that they released pictures of a an avocado green curtain that had been used to wrap Amy's body when her body was placed in the field in Ashland county. It's a very specific type of curtain, a weird narrow size, so if uh, please, if you get a chance, go online and, and look for these pictures, I have them up on my website, but uh, somebody will recognize, the hope is that somebody recognizes this curtain, even though they didn't release news about this for like 25 years, but it's a handmade curtain, it looks like it was made from a bedspread, that somebody then turned into a curtain, so very specific little detail and then uh, just lately we learned a lot more about the DNA evidence that they have in this case just like everything else in the case it's um, promising but also very frustrating they found three hairs on uh, Amy's body uh, one hair on her, on her body one, one hair on her jogging pants one hair on her underwear and each of these hairs comes from a different person and that can mean a number of things that could mean we're dealing with contact DNA transfer, which means her body was placed in a car, and let's say the killer a couple weeks before that had driven his cousin or nephew or an aunt. And they had ridden in the car, and one of their hairs ended up on the seat. And then when Amy was placed there, that hair ended up on her body. Okay. So that's one way that explains why there's numerous people's DNA on her. The other explanation, of course, is that we're dealing with more than one man. That uh, more than one man was involved in the abduction and and murder of Amy Mahalovic which is an idea that you know I've, I've come to consider more and more over the years. One of the reasons being there's so many likely suspects, maybe a couple of them did it together. It's not like CSI. You know they don't have a full strand of, of this person's DNA. It's, it's degraded, and it's mitochondrial DNA, which means what, what generally what you want is nuclear DNA, which is everything. Mitochondrial DNA is is kind of like DNA that's passed from the mother to the child, and it's and it's very fractured. So uh, you know you think of DNA as like a a, a ladder with a thousand rungs. Uh, well, what they have in the Amy Mahalik's case with one of these hairs is they have five rungs. So it's enough to uh, hold up against somebody else's genetic profile and if they don't have those five rungs in that order you can rule them out as uh, that's not their hair but it's not enough to to say definitively yes that hair was left by this person it only it only lets you rule out people
1: You know, I can understand why they might have held back on something like the hair evidence. But in terms of the police holding back on that unique one-of-a-kind homemade curtain and the fact that those girls in North Olmsted had been called by the same killer... That seems to me the kind of evidence that that the public might be helpful on, that there might be somebody out there who could shed light in both of those cases. And yet we didn't know about any of that stuff for, what, more than a decade. And what do you make of that?
3: I think it's a couple things. Um, One, I I think you're dealing with a very conservative police department. So they want to be very careful about what they what they released because one of the reasons you hold back that information is when people come and confess to it. You have to be sure that their confession is accurate. But I also think that part of it was, was dealing with uh, an FBI. The FBI was such a major presence in this case and they uh, especially in, in Cleveland and the, the specific agents that were involved in this case they um, they they have a distrust of the media, and, and they, they have a way of looking and thinking of reporters as, you know, troublemakers as, uh, you know, we're just kind of getting in the way. And there's little respect there between the FBI and and the press, and I think that was a big part of it. And they, they just, they had all this this info and and they just thought well it's not going to do us any good to share these with reporters because they'll just mess it up
1: well we've got to send our listeners to your blog you've had a blog for several years on Amy's case it's on uh, it's amymahalovic.blogspot.com, and that's a mouthful so we'll put it on our website How <laughs> Mysteries so people can just click on it and go straight there and I know you keep people uh, updated on a lot of things that come to you not through the police people are contacting you now with information i gotta ask you i saw the one thing i think it was back in november somebody had called you from a rental property in wayne county who found an old and worn carving on a closet door that said am was murdered here what did you make of that yeah
3: without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop Uh, yeah, that's a really weird clue. I can tell you that the police followed up on it immediately. Um, they went out there and searched for, for the guy that that owned the place, and I think they're looking into who was living at that property at the time. I, I don't think it's going to end up being connected to the case at all. If that's the you know, I I could see like a like a teen kid, you know, doing that. You know, for whatever reason. But I don't think it was any sort of confession. But it, it's certainly scary, you know, and, and who else could they be talking about?
1: and it could have been i mean that was huge news it certainly would have been news in Wayne County and even yeah. if the carving was old somebody certainly could have done it you know back then just hearing the news and it, but it really struck me cuz Wayne County is getting pretty close to Ashland County and i know the police kind of thought maybe the killer knew the Ashland County area because of where her body yeah. was found and i thought well Wayne County you're getting pretty close
3: Yep, it is pretty close. And, and for sure the killer had to know uh, County Road 1181 where her body was found. It's, just, um, it's the perfect place to to do that, to, to, to leave a body. At night, You know, even today, that area where her body was found, you, you can't really see any other houses. Um, so nobody can see what you're doing. And if it's at night, you'll see headlights coming. For like a mile, for you know, before before they reach us, you. so you've got plenty of time to get out of there before before you're spotted.
1: James, are they going to solve this case?
3: Yeah, it's it's going to be solved. The, the the question is whether or not it's going to be solved before the person who committed the crime is dead. Um, and you know, so they they still have these hairs, and eventually they can retest them. But they only get one more chance, um, so they're they're being very careful about waiting for the perfect time to do that. Um, I, I I hope they just I, I'd rather they just roll the dice and see what they can get from a new test. But there's enough DNA uh, evidence that you know using the familial DNA technique, when they eventually retest, um, or even with what they have now, it might it might be enough to point to. To somebody, you know, maybe even if it's like the second cousin of whoever left a hair in that car, um, if you if you manage to track that person down, you know, are they are they would they have written in the car of one of these top three suspects? I mean, that'll get you darn close to your answer. So, uh, yeah, I think I think it'll be solved. I I think probably within the next five to ten years. But you know, my main suspect is not getting any younger and uh you know you'd at least hope that he'd be able to be in prison for the amount of time he's remained free since since amy's murder and i I don't think that's possible anymore right
1: james is there anything we haven't brought up that you want to talk about
3: no uh you know there's there's a lot of attention on this case right now and a lot of new tips um i i'm very optimistic I'm always surprised by this case I went to the FBI and police with a couple unique tip, unique tips just in the last two weeks and you just because I, I, I have a suspect who looks pretty good for this doesn't mean I'm a, I, I'm never hundred percent sure you know for that reason these a couple of these tips that I, I passed on involve um, totally new suspects there you know there are two New guys that, that that are at least possible. So uh, I know the police are, are looking into those leads. Uh, one is an alleged confession, uh, which you know when you when you get those those are always promising, but does it does it match up? Then the biggest tip that's come out since this ID Discovery series, which if you haven't if if anybody hasn't watched that yet um, it's really worth the watch. They did a great job
1: And the name of the that Discovery
3: series I- is the Lake Erie called, or the Lake Erie Murders Uh, Amy Mihaljevic's case is the the first three episodes of that series so it's three hours long they do a great job of that and I got a lot of attention when it came out a lot of people contacted me and one of the things that came out of there was a former student of my main suspect who remember he says he was never at that nature center or or that he doesn't remember being there. And that's the key, is putting him there. Well, one of his students came forward, and he's a great witness. He's got, you know, um, he's, he's sane. He's got a great job. He has no reason to lie. And he says that he was one of the teacher's personal helpers for two years and he says not only do i know that he was at that nature center i went to the nature center with him to deliver the mice for the snakes and i did it on multiple occasions so now we we can definitively link him to the nature center which is which is big so lots of new stuff um you know how active the police and fbi are i don't know but i do know that they're you follow-up on all that stuff mm-hmm
1: let's hope this all leads to the, the right conviction. Obviously there are more than one suspect, but we definitely want the, the correct one caught. Steve? Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, I've already expressed off of mic what a huge fan I am. you were by far my favorite true crime author. The one thing I'd like mm-hmm. to communicate to our audience is that James Renner gets very involved in the cases he covers. He spends his own money. I heard you once say that. Uh, you get a glimpse of that <laughs> by watching the disappearance of Murrah Murray, a television documentary of sorts. A case covered in your book True Crime Addict I have to ask the question as a fan even though I probably know the answer Tina Harmon you know Serial Killers Apprentice that that's my personal favorite by the way uh, Amy Maholovic, mm-hmm. Murrah Murray you know Tina Harmon she's uh, Robert Buell was charged with that but there's some discrepancy there maybe in your lifetime yeah. which one do you want to see the, the most solved Oh, Amy, for sure. One. No doubt about Amy, it. I, I kind of knew. I knew it was going to be Amy, but I had to ask the question.
3: Yeah, you know, it just because I've spent you know so many years just just thinking about it and wondering it and uh just it would be nice to have the answer there and and, you know there's never closure in any case like this you know in real life that's not a real thing i asked amy's dad once about closure and and he said closures for doors not people you know so but he wants answers you know and it would be nice for them to know what happened and who did it
1: Absolutely, James. Thank you so much for being here with us. You know that uh, serial killer's apprentice would qualify as an Ohio mystery because it's still a mystery. Yeah. So we might have to have you back later this year for another episode. For sure. Awesome, That'd be great. <laughs> James. Thank you so much. Thanks for
2: having me. Well, that's it for another Ohio Mysteries. You can find photos, news clippings, and links at our website, ohiomysteries.com for this and all of our episodes, check it out.
1: That brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. At the start of this podcast, you heard a snip of No New Wilderness, written and performed by folk singer-songwriter Drew Joseph, based out of Toledo. You'll find Drew all over social media, including Facebook and Twitter, or just go straight to his website. It's named for his uh, debut album and also the song we played for you, NoNewWilderness.com. Um, Drew tells me on every song on that album, he's placed a biblical reference. And he loves hearing from fans who have found them all. So if you like a challenge, go to his website, play the songs, figure out the puzzle, and shoot him an email. I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, Drew performs all the time. So check out his Facebook page, hit the events button,
2: and look for the next show. And you can find links to Drew, Joseph, and all of our featured musical artists under the featured music link on our website at ohiomysteries.com. But do that later. Right now, turn up the volume, close your eyes, and enjoy the full version of No New Wilderness. And we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery. You cannot
0: hold your tongue When you know something's wrong Gather across the land, taking refuge in your hand, new life your mother made in her great labor pain.